I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to season two of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Clint, and thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? We have done 20 episodes. Can you believe that? With a whole lot more to come. So for this 21st episode, we are doing a compilation of the greatest hits, if you will, of the past. And we thought, hey, why not give you a taste of the best interviews you may have missed, the best survival stories and tips you may not have paid attention to last time. So hold on and get ready for Can You Survive This Podcast's Greatest Hits. So we're going to kick it off right now with Chris Tonto Peranto in Benghazi. Enjoy. And I know that you've talked about this uh, Benghazi several times. So give the Cliff Notes version for those that this, if this is our first time to hear about Benghazi, what happened in your role. You know, give us a quick little Ver, that version you've probably said a thousand times. I'm sorry to make you say it again. It's not a problem. And it keeps the memories of Roan and Bubba alive as well. Right. I agree. Which we'll dig into them too. But uh, I was with, like you said, GRS Global Response Staff. That's the security operatives or agents or whatever the cool guy word you want to use, officers of the Central Intelligence Agency. And we were in Libya at that time just doing what we usually do, which is protection, surveillance, counter-surveillance, low-profile protection, very low vis. Uh, and then also doing um, uh, you getting the layouts and the atmospherics of the city, which we would pass on daily. Uh, now, now, unbeknownst to us until we really got there, our main objective there was to provide weapons and get weapons and move, move Saddam's weapons around that region. Um, legal or not, that's a, that's something the DC will have to explain or if they have tried to explain or not explain. Uh, but uh, when we were there that evening, it was uh, an attack on the U.S. consulate. We were at the annex, which was about three quarters of a mile away from the consulate. It was attacked. Uh, we responded to the attack. There was six of us, tremendous team. We had uh, two Navy SEALs, three Marines, and myself as the, this is the Lone Ranger. Man, I was Tonto and the Lone Ranger at the same time. How about that? I didn't know. <laughs> um, That's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> but but um, we responded, and the attack was pulled off by Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb, AQI, uh, AQIM, and then Ansar al-Sharia, which later melded into what we know as ISIS now. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, 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 was, uh, it was just a... 13 hours of, and it wasn't continual. I think any firefight where you're at it continually, there's, it's just like a boxing match. There's punches and there's lulls and there's punches and there's lulls. Right. And that's what it was. It was, but we had five distinct separate firefights that night. The last one we were, I, we didn't have the ability to counter it. It was with mortars. Um, you know, if we would have got the air support we asked for, I think we wouldn't have got mortared that evening. But the last attack, I think they were more inclined to like, hey, we're not going to try to get anybody, which is what they were initially trying to do is just take somebody trying to get a prisoner, a high value target, which the ambassador, Chris Stevens, was. And uh, he was huge target for him when they found out that they were losing too many bodies and they just couldn't get that person, steal that person, use them as propaganda 
primarily the amb- ambassador who they were trying to get, they brought in the big guns, which we couldn't defend. And they yeah. dropped eight, 81 millimeter mortars on us, which killed Roan and Bub and severely injured Dave Ubin, who was a U.S. State Department security officer, and Mark Osgeist, who was the Marine that was with us there. And then, um, then we were able to finally get out of there with the help of, and for those that don't know it, it, it never came out in the movie. We didn't put it this way, um, but it's in Trey Gowdy's select committee report. Um, that's where I found out about it. I didn't even know these guys, but these guys, the militia that came to came to help us that I had to throw the little jumbo signed up to, they were Omar Qaddafi's, uh, Omar Qaddafi loyalists that, that came and rescued us and actually took thought. out the mortar team. I know, isn't it ironic, isn't it? That's why we were there to overthrow Qaddafi, yet we were saved by Omar Qaddafi. Um, <laughs> How much money were they paid? Uh, and they, you know, they were, I, I, I know they were paid a lot. A ton. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, but they also, you know, they also took out that mortar team for us, which why we didn't keep getting hit. Why? And I, I, I didn't know it that night at the time. All I was like, God, thank God those mortars are stopped because we wouldn't have been able to do anything else. They could have just, they could have just turned our, our compound into dust if they just, if they had wanted to, because they were fire for effect. They were right on target. Well, yeah, I think you and I both are big believers in mastering the basics is what makes you advanced. Hundred percent. A, a lot of people think there's supposed to be some ninja tricks out there that we're, we're not we're not teaching them that we know and i'm like nope you just gotta master the basics we do have a hypothetical survival world for you to try and get through keep in mind okay keep in mind people can come back to life uh cars that are wrecked can all of a sudden work um this is uh this is can you survive this podcast okay so we run shit differently around here but it is something you could think about like in those moments when you think you have the stalker the the you know, the crazy guy following you, um, you know, there's other ways of changing appearance, uh, that could help you, uh, to evade whatever that potential situation is. Um, it could be a change in bags, a change in shoes, a change of any, anything that, you know, they lock onto and how they recognize you. A lot of times, you remember like messenger bags, it was like bad, right? right? For a while there, it was like, you're carrying the messenger bag, you go change your clothes, but you still got the messenger bag. That's the thing they key on. Or shoes, like a lot of times shoes don't get changed and they key on shoes. And it's like, doesn't matter that you just changed all your clothes, they still see the shoes. Um, So, but on the safety security side for the average person, if you're out there and you know, you think someone's behind you and you can dip into a store and maybe even buy something real quick, and throw it on a jacket or something to just break up what their eyes are used to seeing. That is the key. You're just taking away uh, the visual that their that their brain is looking for um, long enough for you to disappear. Um, you start to open the driver's door to get into your vehicle, and one of the guys pushes the driver's door shut and says, "Empty your pockets." <laughs> so, do you a draw your weapon or b Try to reason with them and ask them that, hey, I don't I don't want any trouble. Uh, first off, I would try and create space at this point. Uh, probably not going to deploy a, a pistol at this point because I would rather give them money than shoot them. Uh, and you haven't said whether or not they've they've produced any weapons yet. Uh, so I'm, I'm assuming that they haven't. They're just they're asking for money. Uh so I'm going to try and comply with them, right? I'm going to you know continue to engage verbally, but I'm definitely not going to get in the car. 
at this point because you get crushed getting in the car right there. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to be circling to try and make sure that I'm lining up both of their guys, right? You can't get flanked. So you, you have it, it becomes a movement game at this point to make sure that you are uh, that you're tracking on both of the threats at the same time. Yeah. You answered beyond the answers, which of course I wouldn't expect any less from you. Um, but I did we I did put you as drawing your weapon because you're an aggressive kind of guy. Okay. So A <laughs> you draw a weapon. <laughs> but yeah, just like many of these, there's two right answers sometimes, you know, and it's really situation dictates just like in real life, correct? It's really dependent on what's going on. You're already outnumbered. You could you could literally pull a weapon and probably get away with saying, hey, I was outnumbered. I felt threatened. And so I pulled a knife or I pulled something to try and intimidate them back and create space or whatever, um, which leads to a little sidebar conversation. I'm curious your thoughts on this. And uh, I went through this with John Lovell, Warrior Poet Society, right? And, you know, we are as military trained that if you pull your weapon, you better be pulling the trigger kind of mentality. Um, but do you think there's a place to draw a weapon in order to prevent anything from going any further? Absolutely. Uh, okay. yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I tell guys that I used to say, don't pull your pistol out unless you're going to use it. Mm -hmm. And... That was a very immature, less experienced military. me that, military. that, that said that yeah. because cops pull their pistols out all the time and and shoot people very rarely. Shoot, you know, pulling out your pistol can have a very de-escalating effect. Right. Right. Yes. So what, now what I tell guys is it's never posturing. It's never I just want to win an argument. Uh, so I'm going to pull my pistol out. It is OK. I, you know, my whatever, 44 years of experience tell me that this is going to escalate. Therefore, yeah. I'm like, I'm ready to shoot this guy if he takes two more steps forward. Therefore, if I can pull my pistol out now and say, no, buddy, let, let's just go ahead and stop right there. You know, if, if I can do that and he leaves, man, that's a much higher level win. It's always a higher level win to win with a lower level of violence. Yes. Right. Couldn't because I get to go home. He gets to go home. I'm not, even if it's a righteous shoot, that's still like, I'm getting arrested that day. Oh yeah. You know, there's still, I'm losing my pistol. Like there's, there's going to be all sorts of anxiety because you know, they're going to read you the riot act. They're probably still going to charge you with something. initially like, man, everyone's life is better. If you're like, no, like yeah. if, if you if you take two more steps forward, or or it might be you know that same type of situation. Maybe the guy, one guy's got a pipe, you ID that, you pull a pistol out, and you're like, no man, like this this is not happening. Go go yeah. away. Go go right. home to mama right now. Like go go chill out at home. Like I, I'm gonna leave right now. Uh, but in your mind, you're like, if he comes around, if he breaks twelve o'clock on my truck, I'm gonna burn him down. Because I can't. Because past that, it's he's too fast. For, yeah. for me to be able to, to engage him. Um, right. And that is a significantly higher level win. With any of these active shooter situations, you know, the situation itself dictates what's the right or wrong. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but ultimately, you've got to know where the shooter is because, as you know, and I've discussed this before, gunshots fired indoors is super loud and it's omnidirectional. So you, yep. you have a hard time knowing exactly where the shots are actually coming from. Um, sometimes Absolutely. they sound like they're coming from the right, but really they're coming for the left. But, uh, 
Yeah. If so you look to active shooter scenarios in schools and malls and stuff. A lot of times the groups of people were running right towards the dude. Exactly. They, didn't, they heard gunshots and it re reflected off the wall and they ran right into the actual shooter. So yeah. very good point for sure. Yeah. So freezing up is never, never a good idea in a survival situation. Stay low to the ground and uh, finding cover gives you better chance of survival than freezing up and being an easy target. So uh, you stay low and you you get moving. So next, do you A, get behind a large rack of food in order to hide uh, from the shooter, or B, stay low, zigzag over to one of those freestanding meat coolers? I'll go with the, the meat coolers. <laughs> I'd probably have yeah. a little bit more you know, uh, cover there and, right. um, a better, you know, I would, I would, I would try to position myself to be in a, in a, a dominant position over the shooter and wherever he's positioned. I do, you don't want to get up behind, um, a soft cover in a scenario like that. Cause right. bullets go through bread quick cover versus concealment, right? So bread, potato chips, any rack of food is not going to stop bullets though. It will hide you from the bad guy. Now cover True. cover, Cover is anything that stops bullets. So for those of you listening, you know, you always want to choose cover over concealment because cover will still hide you, but it stops bullets. Like, you know, a freezer full of frozen meat will certainly stop some bullets, um, but the uh, the bread shelf will not. So cover versus concealment. Um, always yeah, look for just cover. Just like your card, like a car door, too. People forget you can <laughs> yeah, shoot right hollow. through a car door, <laughs> yeah. man. Easy. So yeah, get behind I, that engine block, get behind yeah. uh, the wheel well, you know, get behind something that's hardened because um, people have a misconception of what bolts can do. They clean, a 9 millimeter will cleanly go through a, a door of a car. Sure will. So, yeah, that's something you got to think about when you're, when you're in that scenario for sure. You're listening to Can You Survive This Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. You can take the hanger that says Do Not Disturb, you put it on your doorknob, and just before the, the door meets the door frame, go ahead and allow uh, that hanger to slip inside between the door and the door frame as the door closes. So... Basically, what it looks like to the third parties is that the, the, the sign was kind of swinging as you close the door and it got hung up between the door and the door frame. The beautiful thing about this is it's a trap. And you and I, we both love traps. I mean, it's just kind of cool the different things you can do to increase your awareness as you approach your own hotel room door. So if you've put that sign on your doorknob and you let it catch in the door, and then the next time you come back, it's hanging freely. Immediately, it's telling you like, okay, I got to pay attention when I go inside, right? What other what other traps uh, do you think are pretty cool for ho hotel room doors or in hotel rooms generally? Uh, any yeah. precise measurement, uh, opening a, and you may have covered it in, in one of the 100 deadly skills, opening a closet door, but leaving it precisely the width of a dime or a quarter open. So yeah. anyone that opens it, there's no way they're going to be able to get it precisely. Um, any little thing uh, like that, the key is, are you under surveillance in the room? And can you do it in somewhat an effortless way? Mm -hmm. Because if you lay too many traps and the bad guys see you, 
well, then clearly they're going to know you have something to hide, which is going to bring them to put every resource they have against you. So right. trying to do it uh, deftly without drawing more surveillance, I think, is a bigger challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. It's uh, going back a little bit on some of your comments. Yeah, it's, I, I think the best traps are natural to your environment. You're not bringing something in like what you see in the movies, a piece of tape you know, attached to the door in the door frame. That piece of tape stands out. That piece of tape says you're trying to catch someone. Whereas the hair off your head, and it happens to fall off the doorknob, uh, wherever you place it, that's more natural, natural to the environment. Dust is natural to the environment. Um, and discrete alignment, like what you're talking about, using a quarter, a coin, or even your thumb. Your thumb width is great for drawers, for closets, for doors. Um, and the other thing is, is if you're under surveillance in that room, you don't want to be obvious because if you are, that could bring on a lot more a lot more scrutiny than than you'd want and so you've got to do everything as if you're just i'm unpacking my suitcase i'm opening drawers i'm closing them thumb no one's going to see that on camera that you just left your thumb in the drawer before it closed all the way same thing with the closet and then same thing when you're leaving your room and you let that thing swing slightly close the door gets trapped and that becomes your first alarm to pay attention when you go in your room okay back to the scenario Suddenly, a Molotov cocktail comes flying in through your open window, all right? And the mob wants to burn the building down. Do you, A, run out of the building and sprint straight for the Honda, or B, do you zigzag your run, keeping your head low as you try to escape? B. B. Yes, this is correct. And zigzag. So it's important to note um, when you zigzag or run sporadically, it forces uh, shooters and bad guys to change their ele uh, elevation and windage, especially with uh, rifles, pistols, whatever, anything with sights or optics, um, which makes you a harder target to hit. And that's the goal. Be a hard target. So with all the active shooting, mass shootings going on, you know, and you've got to run a long stretch of terrain and you don't have any cover to run to, and you find yourself in the open, run sporadically, run like an idiot, moving all over the place. It makes it makes it a lot more difficult for the uh, shooter to get accurate bullets in your back. So you get to the Honda. Luckily, the key works, all right? And uh, you drive it out onto the road to get out of Dodge when the mob forms a human roadblock ahead, okay? You know what I'm going to do. <laughs> do you, A, floor it? And hope that they get out of the way, uh, and if they don't, oh well. Or B, slow to a stop at least 20 feet back from the mob. Yeah, I'm, I'm gunning it like I'm in the fucking Ferrari. No two ways about it. I'm, I'm human bowling at that point. Human bowling. I like it. Now, so here's the deal. If it's a Ferrari, you probably get away with it because that's like driving you know, a door wedge, right? It's just going to ramp everybody up over the hood, and you're probably going to make it through the crowd. But with a Honda, you might end up doing a whole high axle issue, right? Just like, you know, zombie movies. You run over enough zombies, your wheels are up off the ground, spinning in place, and you're getting nowhere fast. Um, so, you know, even though you got that wrong, i got to take that out. Minus 10. Um, you go ahead and decide to stop ahead of the human roadblock, all right? So, A... You floor it up onto a curb and go around, or B, you put the car in reverse and it 
execute a reverse 180 and just go the other way? B for sure. If, if uh, it's a shoddy enough vehicle to get high centered on a human being, a curb's going to really fuck it up. So, yeah, yeah, I uh, I agree. I mean, it, you're taking chances. If it's a beat up Honda, you really don't know what the tire status is, all that kind of crap. And so, to put any more obstacles in front of those tires is probably not a good idea. Um, and if any of you out there want to practice 180s, I mean, there's a couple of tricks to this. Uh, to A reverse 180 is literally you put it in reverse. And you're going to look back into the direction in which you want to go. Um, and you're going to give it gas. And then you're going to run that steering wheel all the way around so that you can flip that hood uh, 180 degrees uh, with your ass towards the angry mob. And in the middle of all that, whether it's a stick or whether it's an automatic, you got to shift from reverse into neutral so that it glides and then into drive once your nose is forward. So reverse 180s, um, they take some practice, but they're actually pretty easy and effective. And you can usually do it. If you do it properly and get good, you can do it in one lane of space, believe it or not. Um, and so the other takeaway with that, if you're going to go practice this in a parking lot near you, Make sure all your tires are aired up uh, approximately 5 PSI over max. It's important that those tires are hard as a rock and 100% fixated to that wheel rim. Because if you roll the tire... Uh, <laughs> if you roll the tire over the rim, well, now you got flat tires and you are shit out of luck. So make sure your tires are always... I'd yeah. still run all of them over. <laughs> yeah. Let's just see what happens. You know, when you talk about black bears versus brown, uh, brown bears are much more aggressive. Um, so you've lucked out by getting the black bear because getting loud and getting big works effectively on them. Um, waving your arms, steady stream of, hey, bear, hey, bear, hey, bear. You know, get out of here, yelling at them, letting them know that you kind of own your piece of land and hopefully they shoo 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 away uh this would not be recommended if it was a brown bear or a grizzly because uh, they may actually challenge you unlike a black bear for the most part they tend to go eh, okay i'm just going to be a big rodent and get the hell out of here mm -hmm. um for the for the risk for the listeners um being loud and moving through the woods can often uh, keep the bears away from you from the get-go, right? If you're just talking to yourself, talking out loud, making lots of noise, most of your wildlife goes, fuck it, I don't want to know what that is, and they just kind of move on without ever seeing you and you never seeing them. Um, but I, I'll stop there and, yeah, give the other uh, variation with black bears. So black bears are often, as long as they're not, like, emaciated or injured, are much more afraid of us than we are of them. Yeah. Two is they're, if we're 70 feet away, their eyesight isn't that great, but their sense of smell and their sense of hearing is pretty good. So chances are they heard me rather than see me. And so I don't want to, I don't want to target identify myself unless I absolutely have to. Likelihood is that bear is going to look over to see if I'm a threat and then it's going to look down. And as soon as it looks away, I'm going to start, start retreating some more. But to your point, if that bear noticed me and started coming towards me, then I would go option A and make yeah. myself as big and as prominent and as fearsome as I could. Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. Um, yeah, they, they, they're like dogs. They can smell three-dimensionally, and with mm -hmm. that good hearing, 
they know exactly where you are. Oh, um, 100%. Yeah. You can be behind a tree, and they're still going to know but you're there's behind a, the yeah, tree. But there's a big difference <laughs> between a bear, like, you know, feeding, just going, yeah, yeah. Hmm? Right. And, and like, making an, an overt turn towards you. Without a doubt. And I would say, too, the situation, if you've got your family with you versus you're by yourself or with a mama bear with her cubs or by herself also play a big role in the decision-making yeah, process. Huge, huge. All right. Now you're enjoying your coffee. Uh, before you leave, when you notice um, a real dodgy-looking fellow looking at you and uh, and looking at other patrons on the patio, right? So he's kind of scoping some things out. Uh, this guy does not look like he belongs there. Um, he's not ordering anything to drink. He's just kind of hanging out looking sketchy. So do you, A, avoid looking at him, drink your coffee, and look at your phone <laughs> as to not look at the guy and draw any attention to yourself, right? Or B, keep your eyes on him uh, without making it too obvious. Yeah, I'd definitely be watching him. Yeah, keep your eyes on him. Eye contact, yeah. I agree. Um, mm -hmm. We just, we actually just had like Spencer Corson, who, uh, you know, he's a safety kind of security guy who also works in crisis management. And he had a client um, who was in this exact scenario uh, where she just kind of ignored the problem. And guess what? The problem became her problem because he thought, oh, yeah, I'm just going to take advantage of the one who's not paying attention to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they like, to, they like to prey on the, the people who seem weak or vulnerable and not paying attention. So, I mean, I even had times when people will... Like if you, if you run past me once or like whatever, like I'll notice you, if you run past me twice, I think like, okay, maybe they forgot something or maybe like whatever. If you run past me a third time, I'm literally watching you until I don't see you again. So they know that I, I, I know exactly who you are and what you look like. Right. No, I think that's good. And in the world of surveillance, which is where I played for a while, um, you know, you had rules that you never drive past the target more than once, right? When you're doing a CTR, which is a close target reconnaissance. And, um, and, and it's for that reason, because twice, it's kind of like a magic trick. Once is knowledge or once is a, once is magic twice is knowledge, right? And so you want to keep everything you do kind of like a magic trick. You only want to really do it once. Um, but on the receiving end, you definitely should be looking for those multiple passes, uh, in any of those other signs and symptoms um, that someone's uh, targeting you. B, move in the same direction as the side of the tree that actually has moss, mm. right? So there's a lot of uh, environmentals that come into play here. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, moss, grow moss growth can indicate, you know, north due to the, to the mosses... Uh, it's sitting in the shade is the simple way to put it. Right. And so, um, the shade is what promotes the moss growth. And so in certain forests, certain woods around the globe, and usually in the Northern hemisphere is the other mm -hmm. piece of the equation here. Um, you can follow that rule or at least, you know, use it as a stepping stone to going in what you think is the right direction. <laughs> so, um, if but, my South uh, America trip goes south, I need to just reverse this 
in two weeks if this plays out for me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In fact, I would just look up, hey, how do you find north in the southern hemisphere? <laughs> Sounds good. You know, Orion's belt works, you know, from the equator down. You know, that might be a good one using okay. the stars. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, but generally speaking, it's important to see the pattern before jumping to conclusions, right? So if you look around and really take in the environment and you see that moss growth on one side of the tree and not the other, then it's telling you something about sunlight, right? And that's really the goal. Knowing, you know, rises in the east and sets in the west. And, you know, we know that the southern side of most, uh, whether it's a building or a forest, right, it's going to get the most sun. You know, and we're still talking about the northern hemisphere. Um, and it's those factors is what allows you to generally say that, okay, south, moss equals north. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Okay. <clears throat> uh, so now that you've been heading um, north for a while, according to the moss compass, <laughs> uh, you're getting thirsty. And uh, you happen to come across a stream. All right. So do you A, bend down and drink from the stream, or B, dig a hole near the water's edge instead? Where am I? You are, you're, you, you basically found a stream. Okay. You're heading north, uh, and you can either drink directly from the water in the stream, or maybe dig a hole I'm gonna at the dig. edge of the stream. I'm going to dig. I hate to say I, I broke this. <laughs> Every single day in Alaska, but I I, I felt a little safer way up there. Um, yeah. But I'm going I'm going dig. I mean, you are at the top of the stream up there. I mean, right? I mean, by the time you're in like Canada or even Colorado, a lot of stuff is peed in the water. By the time it gets mm-hmm. to those points, <laughs> <laughs> it is eighty percent right. urine at that point. Yeah. So I think when you're in. The Arctic, it's safe to say that, you know, it's probably pretty safe water to drink. We will be right back after the break. Uh, You continue on your route and you make, uh, as you make your way to your destination. So next question, do you A, speed walk as quickly as possible uh, to get this over with as soon as possible, or B, Keep an eye out for any cameras and make sure that you stay out of the view of surveillance. All right. That's the easiest question. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for the softball. I hope I'm right. It's going to be B because you're you're never going to change your gait because then that's alerting behavior to anybody following you. And frankly, whatever pace you are walking, you should continue in that pace. And that, right. can be, that can be practice, but you're always looking for what we call hot spots, right? We even have interactives at the Spy Museum that, that uh, reinforce those points. You're always looking for cameras, policemen, somebody that might stop you and ask you questions. So, yeah, I would focus on B. Good job, B. Uh, since we don't know exactly, you know, who's following you, it's always a good idea to keep your keep your eyes open for cameras and surveillance or anyone uh, that may be, you know, just checking you out. Um, keep your head down and use the hat to shield your face. You know, facial recognition these days, it's, it's difficult to get past it. But if you have something that covers your face, like masks during a pandemic, <laughs> then facial recognition just doesn't work anymore. Um, 
So maybe just continue to wear a mask even though we're getting through this thing. Uh, if you want to increase your privacy. Um, during your enlisted time, was it, what was the probably the craziest thing you did? Well, it would definitely be after September 11th doing those shipboarding operations. Like, I don't have to think too hard about that. My mind we immediately went to bars and things like that. You know, <laughs> and the yeah. new guy in platoon. But uh, uh, my second platoon was September 11th, and we were about two weeks into that second deployment. And uh, we thought we were going to go right into Afghanistan, but instead we loaded up a plane in Guam. We flew in and ended up taking over the shipboarding operations for SEAL Team 3, and those guys ended up going into, into Afghanistan. But it was the only time during those 20 years that I got to do an actual real-world shipboarding operation, uh, multiple. And uh, what we would do is those ships would come out of Iraq, and because of the UN oil embargo, then they take a hard left-hand turn for Iranian waters. And if memory serves, you had about 20 minutes or so, depending on sea state and all the rest of it, to get on those things, take them over, turn them around back into international waters, and then turn them over to a prize crew, which are people that actually know how to drive big ships, which are like class three tankers loaded up with this oil. Um, so it was interesting to do that because they put these passive countermeasures in place. Uh, and for people listening, a passive countermeasure would be something that is not directly like shooting at you. So they take barbed wire, string it up all over the deck. So if you tried to throw a fast rope out, it would get fouled. So you couldn't fast rope onto the deck. That meant you had to come in from the ocean, which meant that in these crazy sea states, it's a lot harder because they would always wait until it was be, they knew it was going to be very difficult for you and a small craft to come up alongside and board. And then if you did do that, then they cut the ladders off on all the on all these different le levels. So instead of being able to scamper up, even once you're on board these things, scamper up to the next level, you couldn't do that because they were cut off. And then all the windows and doors were welded shut as well. So you have to get in there with an exothermic torch, with the saw, usually a combination of both, and uh, and get in there to take these things over. So you're on the clock to do this. Yeah. Get yeah. waters, you got to get off that thing ASAP. And uh, so it was pretty interesting. So as an enlisted guy, that was my first uh, like real world type operation. So I would say that was probably the, the craziest thing I did as an enlisted guy, because it's like a, I would equate it to being a police officer, pulling somebody over in the middle of the night on the freeway or deserted high, whatever. And you're walking up to it and you're not exactly sure who's in there, how many people are in there, um, yeah. what their you know mindset is. You just, you're walking up on an unknown. So same thing here, middle of the night, uh, rough sea state, you're getting on board and you're not exactly sure what you're going to find. So, um, so that was probably the craziest thing I did as a enlisted guy. They're able to film, you know, UFOs and, we're allowed, we're, we're basically having an ability to capture a lot of information these days, right? Cause everyone has a camera in their hand. And so I remember the, right. Yeah. There's yours, your iPhone. Yeah. I've got mine right here. Um, but I remember the, the first time I was like, huh, maybe this UFO thing is actually real was, I believe it was Navy fighter pilots doing an exercise and they saw something come up on all their screens it was moving at this outrageous speed. It yeah. was making maneuvers that are that that are impossible for anything human made. Um, what do you know about that particular event? Yeah, so so I just had you on my podcast, my my down to earth podcast. Yeah, and the same week I had another guy named Chris Mellon, who's a former Undersecretary of Defense, and he's really been out there talking about. Um, talking about this UFO thing and his episode just dropped uh, a few days ago. And like, I've got 200 times more views of his than I did the week before. I bet so pe people are interested in this stuff. 
And that guy, I, I had always just rolled my eyes at UFOs. It's just crazy people, you know. Um, so you've never encountered it yourself in all the space no. time, flight time? No, I, no, I didn't. Nothing. There's a YouTube video of me hiding a UFO. It's like one of these UFO conspiracy theories. And I'm on a spacewalk and you see this flash and then my hand kind of moves in front of the camera. And they're like, there, Terry Virts is blocking the view of the alien spaceship because, you know, whatever. And so we have a little camera on the helmet, you know, looking <laughs> yeah. out. And just as I'm doing my thing, there's something flashed. And and yeah. it's like, yeah, you're right. The other 20 cameras didn't didn't pick them up. The only one that saw it was this one particular. No, it was a GoPro camera on my chest. Anyway, it's just yeah. silly. So I had never seen anything like that myself, but the New York Times... And then CNN and other, you know, legitimate news organizations had this video a few years ago. The guy's name is Commander Dave Fravor. He's a Hornet pilot. And uh, it was over uh, the Pacific, just off the coast of San Diego. I think the Nimitz was the carrier. Yeah. But that was not just somebody seeing something. They had the infrared camera on the Hornet following this thing, tracking it. It was multiple times. You can hear the pilots going, holy shit, what is that? Look at that thing. Did you see that? You know, they're obviously yeah. they're impressed by what's happening. The, there is one of these uh, spy radars. The Navy has these amazing electronically scanned radars on destroyers. Mm -hmm. I think it's an Aegis destroyer, maybe. So they have radar tracking, infrared tracking, all these different and people. And if there's anybody on Earth that doesn't want to see a UFO, it's a fighter pilot. And when you're a fighter pilot, you don't want to go to the intel officer and go to your boss and go, hey, boss, I saw a UFO. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's not what you want to do. And so right. there's a lot of things that are lining up to make this a pretty legitimate, you know, something is happening. A lot of evidence, a lot of evidence. It's not just some old guy with a, a ZZ top beard in Roswell telling stories, right? It, these are these, these are people who don't want to see UFOs who are reporting them. And uh you know, over the years, so throughout this podcast that I had with Chris Mellon, he's talking about, he blew our minds with, after the podcast, my producer and I, you know, you've got your producers here. We were just like, what just happened? This just blew, it, it was amazing what he was saying. And so it's not, and it wasn't just one time, but the thing that really stands out, you know, a lot of quote unquote UFOs are, the DOD calls them UAPs now, mm. unidentified aerial phenomenon, because the UFO term is is bad. Um, you know, some of them are probably drones. Some of them are probably balloons. There's probably, you know, yeah. all this stuff has explanations, but this one particular thing, they call them Tic Tacs because they're, they don't have any um, divots or joints or engine. It's just one smooth kind of coffin looking thing. It's about 50 feet long. And the acceleration was insane. It went from, I think the, if I understand correctly, just from hearing their testimony, they saw this bubbling thing happening in the ocean and then it shot up to, I don't know, 80,000 feet instantly. And then it shot ahead miles. And so the acceleration is, is more than a shell coming out of a, a turret and the speeds are more than these hypersonic missiles. And, you know, they're going from the ocean to air. They, they've even tracked them in space. I got Chris to talk about that on my podcast. So that that type of maneuvering is just not anything that I'm used to. Um, 
So that, that, that's what really got people's attention. And as you know, I'm one of the idiots that likes to thread the needle and drive like an asshole in between cars. Um, and I think that one of the most memorable moments with you, we had a, a government issued van, right? And we are in, in Hawaii and I was kind of the designated driver for all the assholes. So it was like a 16 passenger government issued white van and we get on highway one in Hawaii and I drive that thing like it's a formula one car. And by the time we get done, which was very normal for me, it's just how I drove and you, we get out of the van. I forgot where we were, or what we were doing. You probably remember cause your memory is like fucking thousand times better than mine. But I just remember you coming up to me and showing me your hand and it had beads of sweat in it. And you're like, this is what your driving does to me <laughs> in a van. In a van. Yeah. We were supposed to stay at this like government building, but there was this like transition going on. So they wound up taking us to the new presidential palace, which was still being built. And it was one of those things where you walk in and they have all the president's photos lined up, but all of them are like 18 months in duration because they keep getting assassinated. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, okay, this isn't, this isn't really great for instilling confidence. And they're still like painting the house. They're still like screwing in the light bulbs. And then I see these like two, two or three like military convoys coming in. All these guys with like AK-47. And they're like, this is my protection detail. Hmm. That's going to help me with the, with the, uh, the delegation that's coming in. Plane lands the next day. I've got three. I've got a, a pack of three. I've got the head of the organization, his number one, and a deputy. None of them are American. The only other two Americans are the pilots. But the airport, the private airfield was attached to the presidential palace. So we've got this whole, like three trucks of protection people were there for three days. First day, everything goes fine. Second day, I start to see the protection details like half of what it was. By the end of that night, we're at the dinner with the, with the, uh, the, the president of Mauritania, who it just came out on like the BBC that China was pulling the funding for all the projects they were doing. Cause I don't know if you're familiar with like the Chinese model where they would bring in everything to. So basically the Chinese would go into African countries and say, Hey, we're going to pave your roads. We're going to give your, you know, we're going to give you, you know, lighting. We're going to help with your infrastructure. We're going to do all this stuff, but we want 20% of mining rights. Mm -hmm. And so the government would be like, okay, great. We're going to have all this labor, but the Chinese would just bring in their prisoners to do all the work. Yeah. And they would bring in all, and they would bring in all the materials to to build everything. So the country would actually not make anything, but would also have to give twenty percent away. And China was basically pissed that they weren't getting their their fair share and were pulling out. So now this protest starts coming up to the president's palace. I'm already down half my delegation, so I basically have to take a staff car with my pack back out the back door and get us back to the house. By the third day, it's. 15 guys down from like 150 and I'm like, what's going on? We uh, have a couple meetings scheduled for that day. And I get a, a ping from my guy at the embassy. Who's like, Hey, when are you scheduled to leave? And I'm like, later this afternoon, he's like, no, leave now. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, how much time do I have? And he just took, he just texted me back RFN like right fucking now. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, shit. So I get the pilots to the plane, have them start ramping things up get the, the number two to let the boss know that we've got to go. I just start filling a bathtub up with water to just destroy all the documents. I'm taking a nail and a hammer and just driving it through hard drives, throwing everything into the tub. 
realized that there's an SUV in the garage that can get us to the plane. Fortunately, the keys were still in there and the driver was asleep. He would wake up in a storage closet a couple hours later, get everyone on the plane, or sorry, get everyone onto the SUV. We get to the plane, load it. And as we're ramping up, you see the military convoy coming through the gate. And, wow. the same, and the same general that was like telling me how great his protection <laughs> yeah. team was, was the one that was leading the coup. And I was yeah. like, hey man, drinks time on you next time, yeah. next time we're there. I was like, whew. Because the only Americans on that trip were the two pilots and me. Yeah. And I certainly did not want us to be uh, bargaining chips in some new president's ascension to legitimacy. We will be right back after the break. During your time you know, it was one of the most popular uh, McDonald's lawsuits, right? It was the, a woman pulls into the drive-thru, buys a hot coffee, puts it between her legs, somehow spills it, burns her vagina, and then sues you guys and end up walking away with millions. So uh, what's the background on that? Well, I, I knew the operator who owned the restaurant. It was in New Mexico. And kind of the backstory is that uh, there's always a little more. Yeah. She was uh, in her forties, a hot chick for Southern Mex New Mexico, uh, driving a little sports car and had a younger boyfriend with her. And so she hiked up her mini skirt to put the hot coffee. And in those days, coffee was coming out at almost 200 degrees at our coffee machines. Yeah. And when she speed shifted, she squeezed her legs together as she synchronized the clutch and that she burned herself. And uh, apparently she went home, uh, was in some discomfort, but still had friends there. And she entertained socially for the next couple of days, had some boyfriend, I've had a boyfriend come in. But then on the third day, went to the hospital to express some discomfort. Mm. And ultimately that led to a lawsuit. Uh, the insurance company decided the best way to pursue it was to bring in a New York firm to represent her in this little town in New Mexico. And Yankee lawyers don't necessarily do well in rural New Mexico. And ultimately <laughs> uh, the ruling was against her, but I, I was against McDonald's. But later I, on review, I don't believe it held. But the interesting thing to me was in the next year, there were more than 600 copycat lawsuits. Oh man. Yeah, of course. So, the, the worst I ever had was someone sued me claiming they slipped on a pickle in the parking lot. <laughs> and they were directly proportional to the economy. As the yeah. economy got worse, the lawsuits went up. Being a career spy and having done what you've done for as long as you've done it, lessons learned that apply to the average person, right? So, you know, um, we call it tradecraft for those of you listening. Tradecraft really is just a discreet way of getting getting business done. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of schools out there and training that both Chris and I have had, um, and there's a lot of cool stuff you see in Hollywood that exploits some of that. Um, but if I were to you know if I was walking down the street and I thought I had a stalker, you know. Chris, what would you what would you advise the, some some cool tricks or tips that you think that might help to determine whether or not I've got a stalker or not? So I guess I would run a improvised 
surveillance detection route, which I've tr been trained to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about uh, looking into windows and stopping and tying my shoe. I'm talking about maybe going into what we would call you know, uh, an intrusion point, you know, into a store. If the individual who's on the street follows me into a store that has multiple exits and entrances, like in a mall, if mm -hmm. I could do that in an improvised way, and that individual follows me into that location and exits with me at one of those many exits, then that's more than a coincidence. And maybe I'm going to do something again to just determine that I'm in fact being followed, but I would make mental note of it. And eventually I would get to the point where I want to break contact from that individual because I don't know if there's somebody that's going to rob me. So I would use the skills that I've been trained to do to kind of break contact. As I said, going into a building with multiple exits and entrances, a multi-story building with lots of people, once confirming that this individual came to the location, then my adrenaline might start start pumping just a little bit. Why is the individual following me? And then if nothing else, I've honed observation skills. What's the individual wearing? Does he look to be aggressive in any way, shape or form? Does he have anything that can be used as a weapon in his hand? So I would basically be collecting information and doing some confirmation. So that's how I would approach that. There's a story I have had to tell several times because it's super entertaining, but I've actually never heard your version. So let's talk about how I saved your life in Singapore. And I'd want to hear your version this time around instead of me always telling the story because it is pretty damn funny. All right. So it started off, you and I had a couple of drinks. It was just us. <laughs> and uh, no, the, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know if it was the food uh, in Singapore or what, but um, I, you know, I w like from the time we got there within a, within a few days of being there, I hadn't shit, you know, and I'm not one of those, like <laughs> I shit once a week, need a fucking, you know, un untangled, uh, fucking um hanger to, to mash the fucking thing down i i don't shit like that i'm, I'm pretty normal that way yeah i, I you know I, I shit you know a couple times a day most days you know so um so it, it was for sure abnormal and, and after a few days i was like god damn what the fuck you know and, and i tried to shit and couldn't uh and it, but it felt like i had to you know so i was bloated and, and really uncomfortable and it got to the point where like i couldn't even pt i don't know if you remember that uh it was like a run swim run that we did with with the uh, Singaporean seals and, and going in the CTT and, and in the water and, and run it. Like I yeah. didn't do that because I was, I was so fucking constipated and, and fucked up from it. Um, and so that, that afternoon after we finished that, um, is when I, you know, I came to you, I was like, dude, I, you know, I, I missed out on this. I, I haven't shit in like five fucking days or a week. I mean, it'd been a while and I'm, I'm really uncomfortable. I feel like I'm about to explode. I've tried and, and it, it's like the turtle head is there. And it just won't fucking go any further, you know? And like, I pushed to the point where like, I'm giving myself fucking hemorrhoids trying, trying to shit and I can't. And, uh, and so that's when, you know, you're like, yeah, come, you know, come down to the room and, you know, I'll, I'll take a look and, and do what I can or whatever. And so, uh, I, I should have known that when you said, you know, come down in a few minutes, that that was the fucking indicator that you were going to circle the wagons and make sure everybody was there to fucking, I uh, was there to, to, to get in on it. But, uh, so yeah, I, at that point, honestly, like I didn't even give a fuck. I mean, I, you could have put me in stirrups on, on pay-per-view TV and I, and I would have done it cause I, I was that uncomfortable. But, um, so, you know, 
you've got me fucking bent over. I drop trowel and you slap on the latex gloves. And, uh, it, it reminded me of the prostate exams. Like when you were fiddling around with my ass, like it, 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 ha- it had that same s- s- uh, sensation. Like I could feel the tip of my dick fucking tingling, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, because this was like, you're, you're digging in my ass trying to, uh, trying to, to break the shit loose or whatever. And, and you, you know, for, for several minutes, you know, tried to, to do what you could. And, and, uh, you're like, dude, you're fucked up. You got to go to this. And, and uh, you got to go to, uh, we ended up going to the embassy medical clinic, uh, in Singapore. And, uh, you know, I, I wish, I mean, it's something where, you know, now that I think about it, like, I don't know how the fuck you didn't think of this, frankly, but I, I go in there and, and 30 seconds later, they hand me a box of fleet enema and they're like, go in that bathroom and shove this up your ass and you'll be fine. And I did. And Jesus Christ, dude, like I've, I haven't used one since, but like, that's, that's gotta be the go-to. Like I could not believe a, it was uncomfortable and fucking weird. You know, it was like douching your asshole. But, uh, (laughs) once I did that, like within 30 seconds, it wouldn't have mattered what I was doing or where I was at. There was nothing stopping that. I don't know what the fuck they put in that, but, um, Dude, I mean, it, it was, it was just like, honestly, it was like, I gave birth to a nine pound shit baby. Like it just, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was impressive. I looked down, I was like, how did I not just rip my ass in half? You know, right. like, but it, it just evacuated my entire fucking bowels. It was amazing. That's uh, awesome. One of the, one of the most relieving feelings I ever had. And then, you know, went, went right back to being normal. So I don't know what it was, but uh, Jesus, how many times have we heard that story? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I get comments like on, on my podcast, whatever, it was nothing to do with you or Singapore or anything. You're like, yeah, how about the, why don't you have Clint stick his fingers in your ass again? You know, it's just like, I feel like people, it's, I mean, it's almost as bad as the Epstein thing. It's like, I'm, I'm more known yeah. for you looking like yeah. an Amish horse mechanic up my well, you know, and it's uh, it's interesting. A couple of things, you know, just for new listeners, especially since, you know, first podcast here. One, I was the medic. I just wasn't some guy Mike came to that had small fingers. Um, so that's that, the medic piece. Number two, what I remember is because we were waiting in the lobby so long to get our rooms, you ate like an entire platter of cheese and it just clogged you up. Um and then, yeah, I didn't have the enema stuff. I knew that you needed, you know, a little bit, you know, a little more heavy hitting medicine. You wake up the morning after delivering the dog and decide to go take a run, a little jog. Do you even run anymore? No, I didn't think so. I wouldn't have taken an Uber either, but go ahead. <laughs> you jog about a mile and a half from your hotel, all right? And while you're jogging, you notice a small airstrip. Couldn't have cued that better. There's no way that was not, that was the fucking airstrip there. Are you shitting me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I thought uh, I thought the producers were fucking with you. <laughs> no, shit. that's a what are the that was one of those damn World War II planes flying by. Yeah, did you say A team? A team, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They had to build oh, something. Every episode, they had to build something at the end. Yeah. It's kind of like yeah, a little totally, bit totally of MacGyver, but it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's do a little tribute here. One of my uh, alarm features is definitely um, something. I can do the whole thing from memory. <laughs> yeah. 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 
else can help. And if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A team. Yeah. <laughs> Still gives me goosebumps. I love it. It's fantastic. But uh, yeah. All right, buddy. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. You have yeah, a, uh, a great day. And for those of you listening, remember keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest. And we'll see you next time. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson. <laughs>